It's all part of one giant equation. The number of people that have been infected with the virus and recovered is part of the equation. How well people comply with social distancing is part of the equation. How good contact tracing and testing in is part of the equation. How good businesses are at maintaining protection of their customers and staff is part of the equation. Yeah, you can't have a lens wide enough to see the impact of this. And when you look at what's happened in South Korea in this past week, and one of the things that they reopened were nightclubs. And in this past week, they showed something like 80 newly diagnosed cases that were linked to a handful of nightclubs that one individual had visited. That's the writing on the wall. Problem is, there's no control for this experiment, is there? No, there is not. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark Podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. As we move towards the middle of May and the beginnings of statewide reopenings, our COVID roundtable returns today. Time and again, you've provided the feedback that our twice-monthly get-togethers have been insightful, helpful, and a welcome source of thoughtful dialogue. We are deeply grateful to you for your feedback and encouragement. Please keep it coming. Even more so, we're glad that you're voting with your ears, listening to this podcast and sharing it with family, friends, and colleagues. So like that old penny you just can't lose, we're back today with our latest installment. This time around, as of our May 11 recording date, we're feeling much like you are, a little bit worn down by how much and how fast things have changed since February and March, and quite frankly, a little bit frustrated that we still have so little to go on about what will happen next. That said, buckle up. We've still found plenty to discuss. The state of our healthcare and public health systems, testing and tracing, the need for a new rallying cry beyond flatten the curve, and so much more. At its core, the novel coronavirus simply wants to do everything it can to spread from human to human. This podcast, at its core, simply wants to spread smart thoughts about how we will respond, adapt, and find our way forward. We all need to take advantage of every opportunity these days to process where we've been and smartly plan where we want to go together. So let's get to it. It's time to talk about where we are now and how we move forward, centering health and the social determinants of health in the context of COVID-19. Today, we are back with the COVID-19 roundtable. Sitting right next to me is the man who's fresh off his appearance at MSNBC, Mr. Will Humble from the Arizona Public Health Association. How are you, sir? Howdy. Thank you for the invitation. Glad to have you back. Glad to have the return of one Marcus Johnson from Vitalist Health Foundation. Marcus, how are you? Hey, everyone. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me back. And then there's the man on the front lines, Dr. Nick Vasquez. Nick, how are you? I'm doing well. Didn't know that I was with such a star as Will Humble. It's all true. It's all true. Although, check your sources. All right. Two weeks later, it is Monday, May 11th. Will Humble, what do the public health numbers tell us today? Well, here's the pure on numbers, and then we'll talk about how to interpret it. The number of cases is way up over the last week. The reason for that is that the number of tests that are available are way up. And not just in the Saturday tests that have been set up. Our second big Saturday of tests was, yes, a couple days ago. But the PCR tests, the nasal swab tests are much more widely available. A lot more tests are being done. So they're finding a lot more cases. So that would sound bad on the surface that we have a lot more cases, but it's actually a good thing because the testing is now way more available. And the county health departments are staffing up on contact tracing. I just got an email from Maricopa County Public Health. They hired 20 already so far contact tracers, and they're in the process of interviewing a bunch more. So that's on the testing and contact tracing. 
In terms of new hospitalizations, we're on a very slow downward slope on new hospitalizations, which I like that chart on the DHS dashboard because it relatively independent of testing. So we've had such big changes in testing capacity over the last however many weeks we've been doing this. A lot more tests are available now. But the new inpatient hospitalizations graph was independent of that because all those folks were tested. And if they were positive for COVID-19, they're on the list. And so we're on a slow downward slope on that regard. In terms of percent positive, and we could get into this, I think, a little bit later in the podcast, the percent positive of those PCR tests is slightly down, but not very much. And that goes to getting criteria number two under the federal rubric. So all in all, you know, things are getting better, but it's a slow improvement. I know Will had alluded to maybe jumping onto this a little bit later, but I just looked at the DHS website where it looks at the percent positive. And I've been kind of using the narrative that, yes, the number of cases might be rising, but like Will said, that's just a product of us doing more testing throughout the state. And so long as the percent positive stays on a downward trajectory, then that means that we're doing decently. But the data that was just released shows that for the first time since early April, that downward trajectory in percent positive has actually increased. So last week we were at 6% positive for the PCR tests, and this week we're at 8% positive for the PCR tests. While we're still beneath the threshold that is supposed to be around 10%, it'll be interesting to see if that thing keeps going up as we continue to increase our testing capacity. And just a reminder to all those listeners that are actually going to the Department of Health Services website, make sure you go to the drop-down box. Because if you don't, the department has mixed serology tests in with PCR tests, which is not a good thing because they're completely different tests with different objectives that tell us different information. And to look at trends, you got to look at the PCR test. That's that nasal swab, uh, looking for active infection test, totally separately from whatever trends you see on the serology, whether it's the rapid test or the blood draw. Because if you don't go to the drop-down box, you might be looking at a combined data set, which is not a good thing to take a look at. Nick Vasquez, hospitalizations. Still holding steady. What does life look like on the front lines in the emergency room and in the hospital? Last week, we noticed definitely busier. I guess I can sum up my experience like this. Back in March, we were finding the shutdown order basically cut our business in half. But the number of patients we were seeing with coronavirus who either A, presented like they had coronavirus or B, had no idea they had coronavirus was a big chunk of what we were doing. And through April, that steadily declined. And now I'm still seeing coronavirus, but I'm not seeing the surprise cases, the ones where people will walk in and I'm seeing you for something else. And I look at your chest x-ray and it looks like coronavirus. I'm not seeing that. So in that respect, just my personal experience, the overall prevalence of cases is going down, but has not gone away. We've sort of stepped down our emergency response. We are now opening up for elective cases. So our busy factor has gone up. More people coming in, more cases being taken care of other than just in the ER. You're in a network of emergency room physicians, both in the state and across the country. Are the things that you're hearing from them similar to what you're experiencing? What I'm noticing is that it's it's a wide geographic variation. You know, there's the New York experience, there's uh, the California experience, there's the Arizona experience, there's the Washington experience, different experiences. 
But the one thing that unifies us all is the shutdown orders cut our business 50% or more. You know, New York, New Jersey is its own little area. And so they're ground zero. Now it's more like this wide geographic experience. What's Georgia going to be like? What's Alabama going to be like? What's Kentucky, Tennessee, you know, New Mexico? We all get to see. We're not sure what the future holds, but at the moment, like the volumes of are down for most of the states and the hospitals risk failure if they stay closed. So we've reopened for elective cases, provided that they're not COVID-infected people. Marcus, you pretty much stand at the crossroads between Will and Nick. You're looking at both public health and health care and the policy changes, the policy shifts that have been made, the emergency authorizations that have been given. Talk a little bit about big shifts and things that you see happening that are both positive and negative. Yeah, I think the biggest shift can be summarized in conversations we have with our families or friends about, hey, you know what? When I talk to my doctor through Zoom or WebEx, it's actually kind of cool. Telemedicine is just proliferating throughout Arizona and the United States right now. And it's not because there's any sort of new technology that's available. It's because the policy gates have completely opened up to telemedicine. And there's definitely, you know, some nuances that we still need to work through. But by and large, telemedicine is pretty ubiquitous throughout the country right now. Arizona, the governor's executive order expedited a policy that was supposed to go into effect next year. He said, no, let's put it into effect now. Let's require all insurance companies to cover telemedicine services if they're covering those services when they were provided in person. But it actually goes a step farther and says, if you're going to cover a telemedicine service, you got to cover it at the same reimbursed cost as you would reimburse it in person. So not only are consumers becoming more aware of telemedicine and the benefits of it, but the provider community is actually being reimbursed at a fair and adequate cost compared to where it was just a handful of months ago. So out of necessity comes something pretty huge and pretty great. The only thing you're missing is the waiting room magazine. (laughs) Maybe somehow they can incorporate that. I'll tell you the number of companies that have started up or created out of nowhere for telehealth is an impressive number, but there's already a bunch of players underway. It really kind of highlights something that I've been thinking about a lot, which is that coronavirus is a lot of things, but one of the things it is, is an accelerator for trends that were already underway. That acceleration is just the shift to online. Hey, I've got a computer. I'm going to sit at home. Why do I need to go to a doctor? Why can't I just do telehealth? Why can't I just Zoom or FaceTime with you? Question we've been asking for a while. You're talking about people, though, who are in a position where they can stay home for work, avoid risks from coronavirus, still make a wage, and then also save themselves time from a trip. Turns out that's about 30% of the U.S. has jobs where they can stay home. The rest of the U.S. does not. The rest of the U.S. works in a business model that requires people to be physically present for work and people to be physically present to spend money. All of those business models are greatly challenged by coronavirus right now. Unless they shift to digital, shift to online quickly, they may not survive. I've seen reports that department stores' death, which was already underway, has been greatly accelerated by this. I think JCPenney's filed for bankruptcy, Neiman Marcus, Barney's, J. Crew. the list goes on. If you work for a living in a place where you have to physically show up, how's that going to look? And then if you just are able to work from home, I see more and more options coming to you through your computer. That shift to online is dramatic. 
Yep, you're absolutely right. And the number of organizations, not the least of which Local First Arizona Foundation, working to sort of triage and create a response so that small businesses in Arizona can actually learn how to survive and possibly even progress through this pandemic. Those are the types of things people are doing, like rapid adaptation is what's needed right now. And it's needed because we're not really sure how to manage through this pandemic from a public health perspective. Will, talk to us more about what needs to be in place in terms of tracing, testing, quote-unquote containment. I'll start with the contact tracing and then talk about opening businesses because we were kind of on that track. Here's the way I view it, is that this stay-at-home order is a super blunt instrument with all kinds of collateral damage that comes with it, with economic destruction, especially in the population Nick was just talking about, service workers who are required to be at work. A much more refined tool with less collateral damage is contact tracing. Over and over, you hear talk about the importance of testing, testing, testing. And, you know, everyone talks about testing. A main reason why testing capacity is so important is if you have good testing and you have good contact tracing, then you've got a combination whereby you know who gets ill with the virus. You can then have a person whose job is dedicated to talking to that person about what isolation means, talk to them about their house, how they can physically do the isolation right, talk to them on a person-to-person basis about who their closer contacts have been, find those contacts and talk to them about what quarantine means, which is different from isolation, and explain to them what it is that they need to do to protect their community and their family members. And so it's that retail public health work on the contact tracing side that's tied to knowing who's sick on the testing side that's so important. And I was really encouraged to see two weeks ago, Maricopa County came out with their job announcements for hiring a whole bunch of contact tracers. The other counties are doing that as well. They've already been hired, as I mentioned at the top of the hour. They're going through their training to learn how to be a contact tracer. And so it's those retail public health people that are going to be out there over the long run that are going to, we hope, be able to substitute for what that stay-at-home order did, which was kind of a blunt instrument with all this collateral damage. But at the time, we really didn't have an alternative. I'm hoping that testing and contact tracing becomes that alternative. It also depends on people continuing to practice social distancing. And for businesses, as they open, it's going to be super important for them to open responsibly. There's been so much focus on what's the right date to open? What's the date? To me, I'm like, the date isn't as important as the how. When and how will businesses be able to open responsibly so that they can protect their staff and their customers. So if you're a restaurant, it's more important that you open the right way than the date that you open. Same with a health club or a retail store or a manufacturing facility. It's about knowing what to do, how to do it, implementing that, buying the plexiglass, working the floor throughput on where your staff and customers can be and how to avoid the the gathering spots and the bunching up that can happen. That's really the key. And I think we'll find out this week for those of us that go out into the community and to some of the retail stores that are opening up, find out how many of them are actually implementing things in a responsible way. If you go back in time for those businesses that have been considered essential all this time, I'll use Costco as an example. Costco a month ago, It's totally different from what Costco looks like today because it's been an iterative process. At first, they came out with what were some simple things to implement for social distancing and throughput and that kind of stuff. And as time went by, you saw more and more mitigation measures in place. And I think that's what we're going to see with the rest of these businesses that weren't considered essential is that 
over time, you'll see iterations where they get better and better at thinking through what the mitigation measures are that they need to implement. And if they don't, it's to their own demise because the check and balance in the system are the customers. And the customers are going to go into places, whether it's a restaurant or a retail store or whatever, if they don't see visible mitigation in place, they're going to vote with their feet. Just the human beings in the system are going to be a check and balance on the system in terms of how the businesses function and what mitigation they have in place. You bring up a great point. I'm just thinking about the new social norms that are being created right now. The government has not required businesses to create certain processes to, to mitigate spread. They're offering guidance. Governor's office has offered guidance to barbershops and cosmetology. They've offered guidance to restaurants. They've offered guidance to retail. But really, this is going to fall on, like you said, consumers. There are these new social norms that are being created where if I'm going to pick up takeout at a restaurant and there is a large crowd of people that's standing right next to each other waiting to get into this restaurant, that doesn't mean my expectation of safety anymore. I expect to see a line of people six feet in between each one of them, each of them wearing masks, each of the staff at the restaurant wearing masks in order to take my credit card and hand me the food. So there are a number of different social norms that are being created right now. You know, that's such a great point. I've done a lot of reading to try to write a post on the economic impact and how you measure that and how you balance lives. And one of the best ones that I came across was this article from the Collaborative Fund called uh, Wounds Heal But Scars Last. And what it was really talking about was how events like this reset an entire generation's perception of intolerance of risk. All of us who are going through this, especially the younger ones, will feel like and experience a world where things can go bad quickly. And that won't leave their minds. It's like the population that lived through the Great Depression. They never got over it. They always hoarded things. They never threw away anything. It will have an impact and it will mean that people will change their behaviors and become potentially much more risk averse, much more likely to hold on to cash rather than invest it. All sorts of things that mean certain business models don't work quite the same way anymore. So no matter what we do, like there's going to be great change. But the best way to fix this, if you can, is to remember it's a health crisis first. That if you can't get the virus to go away, no amount of pretending things are normal will work. Well, I got to go all the way backwards. For those who don't know, who are listening, what is the difference between quarantine and isolation? Isolation is something that you do when you know you're infected. So in this case, with the coronavirus, you stay away from everybody. You go into isolation, just like it says. So you find a room in your house. If you can't do that, find somewhere you can go for at least two weeks where you'll be by yourself so that you're not exposed to anybody else. If you are exposed to somebody else, you infect that other person. Quarantine means that you've been in contact with somebody who's confirmed to have the coronavirus. So you've been in contact with them, but you don't have symptoms. You're not infected with the virus, but you need to be more vigilant. Let's say, for example, somebody at your job is infected with the virus and goes into isolation, and you were a direct contact to that person. In other words, you had the cube next to them or were right next to that person for a large chunk of the day. Then you don't come to work anymore. You stay at home in quarantine. 
but that doesn't necessarily mean that you go to your house and live within a single room within your house. You can go back to your house and live with your family and be with the rest of your family, but not be the person that goes out to get the takeout, like in Marcus's example. You'll be the person that stays home and waits for that, but you don't need to go into full isolation. Easier way to think about it, quarantine is a step down from isolation, and it's not nearly as restrictive, but you need to change your behavior. For example, not going into work, not being the person that goes to pick up the takeout, and being super vigilant about any kind of symptoms that you get and making sure that as soon as you get any kind of a symptom, whether it's a fever, a cough, you just feel bad, go into isolation right away so that you don't infect the rest of your family. Marcus, to your point about retail reopening and how consumers are going to interface with retail stores, no less than Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban, Shark Tank star, sent 300 secret shoppers out in Dallas. Dallas opened up, quote unquote, on May 1. The results, they say, are stark. Only 36% of businesses reopened that first weekend, and 96% of those open stores were not compliant with protocols. They found that businesses followed only about 60% of mandatory protocols and 54% of suggested protocols. What does that tell us about where we're going in Arizona, where we don't even have mandatory protocols? Time will tell. Best case scenario, businesses take this extremely seriously. They realize that their patronage is contingent on people feeling safe. If they want to maximize their bottom line, they need to have as many people purchasing their service as possible. And I think that to Nick's point, there's these new social norms, there's new expectations. People are going to react differently to patronizing businesses than they did a handful of months ago. So success as a retail business or as a restaurant or as a barber Success is going to look a little bit differently than it did a few months ago. It's already really different depending on who the clientele are with what we have called essential services. So I'll just give you a quick example. When I go to Trader Joe's, all the staff have masks and pretty much probably all the customers have masks, at least from my experience. They look at the blue tape on the floor. For that retailer, compliance was great. I went to Prescott over the weekend and I had to get steer manure. The only place that had it was Walmart. So I went to the Walmart in Prescott and the staff all had masks. Maybe 5% of the customers had masks on and no one was looking at the tape on the floor. So it's going to be like that, I think, where depending on the store and who the customers are, what their perception is of the risk and other aspects to the personality profile of those customers, it's going to be different depending on the store. It already is different. Hats off to the Bashes family, by the way. In my Bashes, at least, the aisles are one way, which means you have to walk more of the store and go past more products in order to get to the ones you want, which means you're going to buy more. So good job, guys. All politics is local, and this is small p politics about decision-making, like what kind of choices am I going to make? Do I need a mask? Do I not need a mask? There's just this different geographic experience. If somebody knows somebody who got coronavirus, it's personal. If somebody doesn't know somebody who died from coronavirus or got sick from coronavirus, well, then it's just abstract. And I feel like that's kind of what we're seeing is that you had the prevention paradox where we locked things down. We were able to flatten the curve. We stopped the growth of the spread. And now a lot of people who did not live in New York now are wondering what the big deal is. I'm a professional pessimist as an ER doc, but I fear for July and August. Who knows? I I know the future like you do, but that's kind of the sense I get is that We just haven't gotten really personally affected by it, depending upon our experience. The experience has to be visceral. Reopening. We're not talking about when. 
We're talking about how. We're also talking about where are we now versus when we actually shut down in the first place. Dr. Bob England, Pima County Health Department, made a great point last week that when we did the shutdown, we were at, let's just say, level one on the escalator. And now we've had all these weeks of closure and we've flattened the curve. And yet we've risen to say level five of the escalator. And then we go to reopen. Whatever happens in terms of growth of new cases happens from level five up. And that should be a cause for concern, particularly if we don't have the correct testing and contact tracing to pick up those trends. Agree? Disagree? I agree. Yeah, I, I feel like we've been presented this false choice that we have to either have an economy or save lives. And I think, Will, your point earlier in the day about people's tolerance of risk, the consumers will police this, I think is right. As we go forward, people have to feel safe to do things outside of the house. And if they don't, well, then you can reopen all you want. It's just not really going to help. I mean, certain business models don't work when your restaurant is 70% full or you can't sell every third airline seat. So you, you talk about reopening like, well, we've got to reopen the economy, but you can't do it by just ignoring lives. You have to create that sense of safety that people are safe to go out and do what they need to do. Otherwise, you're just not going to be able to reopen no matter what the policy is. But as a country, there is no policy. There's no CDC leads us and tells us what to expect. CDC gives guidance to the public health or the White House sets out a policy and says, we really want everybody to follow this. Or the governor comes out of a state and kind of says, well, all right, these are the outlines for when we're going to open it. Oops. Well, actually, we're going to open it now. And I can't criticize a ton of people because we haven't lived through a pandemic. But we really have a 50 state, 50 locality policy. Do whatever you like and let's see what happens. And I don't feel like we've done the adequate investments in testing, tracking, but we've done some. Some of this has to do with a variation in people's understanding of what the risks look like from a public health perspective. There's sort of a fundamental set of beliefs that vary widely about how dangerous this is, how transmissible it is, how much impact it can have on us as a society versus where we have been. Isn't that what's driving this? It's really hard to understand exponential growth and really hard to understand exponential decline. The testing numbers are kind of a debacle because, well, we've only got the capacity that we've got, but that's fine. It's, don't follow the testing numbers, follow the hospitalizations and deaths, and that gives us a better understanding of how large the outbreak is. But with an R0, an infectious capability of like, what is 5.7, that for every infected person, if we do nothing, you'll get that five on average maybe six more infected people, that curve is just dramatic. And if you keep people home, well, the fall off is dramatic. It's really hard to understand exponential growth and then exponential decline and not feel like, well, this was totally overblown. We put all these lockdowns in places. What they did was they gave us this exponential decline. And all of a sudden, it seems like this was totally overblown. Let's try to build an understanding for the folks who are out there of what we're actually facing. And Marcus, I'm going to start with you. I don't think you were in South Korea this weekend, but I think you read about what happened in South Korea this weekend. Can you share with that, please? I definitely was not in South Korea this weekend. <laughs> but as we're talking, it just keeps pinging in my head that, yes, it, it may be frustrating that we don't seem to have a single national policy or approach to how to reopen. But we can learn from things that are going on in other states. 
and we can learn from things that are going on in other countries. When Sweden announced that their approach was going to be protect our elderly and let's let the young and healthy just run wild, we'll get to herd immunity faster. The early data is showing that they're still experiencing a significant amount of death, even more so beyond their neighboring nations. And when you look at what's happened in South Korea in this past week, South Korea is one of those countries where they did not see a significant peak and they actually were able to control the spread relatively early. And so they started reopening. And one of the things that they reopened were nightclubs. And in this past week, they showed something like 80 newly diagnosed cases that were linked to a handful of nightclubs that one individual had visited. That's the writing on the wall. And we as a nation and as a state, we should be learning from those sorts of experiences from other areas and thinking that, all right, as we slowly reopen, maybe barbershops might be okay. Maybe restaurants, there's a degree of opening that's safe, but maybe we stop short of some nightclubs opening. Nick, you brought it up first, but I think we need to have more conversation about it. The other 70% of the country that cannot work right now or is working at great risk, how do we balance? the emergent health situation with the need for economic security, a livelihood, and by the way, safety for those who are forced to work. With great caution, you use the stuff that you know already, and then you kind of watch. We all want the end of the story. We all want to know what this is. And to be honest with you, we're still learning what the symptoms are of this virus and what the long-term impacts are of this virus. And where I work, I mean, it's all contact and droplet, and I wear PPE, and I put on my mask, and all of that. But if I'm at a restaurant, can I really keep six feet from the person in front of me? If I'm a cook, can I really keep six feet from the person next to me? If not, well, do I wear a mask? What about the hand sanitizers? If I'm in retail, if I'm in real estate and I'm showing a house, if I'm in education and the schools reopen, these are just serious questions where we need the best thinking that we can get on how to keep people safe. Otherwise, we're going to hit the third rail. And for me, the third rail is all hospital capacity and healthcare capacity. You overwhelm the hospitals and we just can't care for the number of cases that we have. We're not there right now. We've flattened the curve. We have hospital capacity. So the opening is understandable and I think the right thing to do. But you've really got to follow closely given the speed at which this can grow. And it takes two weeks to three weeks for the decline to occur. So it's an open question right now. What do we do to keep people safe? We reopen with masks and it's all on your own recognizance? I don't know. I mean, as a physician, I can hold you against your will if you have tuberculosis or Ebola and you don't want to be isolated. I can hold you against your will because the public is threatened by your presence. But if you have cancer and decide to go and treat yourself whichever way you want to, well, the public's not really hurt. That's your choice. I can't hold you and I'm not gonna. We're somewhere in the middle there. If I have coronavirus, if I go out, I'm eventually going to get somebody sick who's going to die. Well, a couple of things from a pandemic monitoring perspective. Reopening, quote unquote, started last week, continues this week. If you're a member of the general public, at what point can you say, look, we reopened and nothing happened. How long should people be thinking in terms of time horizon from the moment the reopening starts to the moment that we see the effect? So given the incubation period and the r not where it's at right now, which is about 1.1 for Arizona, I'd say a month, something like that. So if a month from now the curve is still flat, we know we reopened safely. 
Yeah, we would know most places reopen safely and that people's behavior is still safe. We're just in the middle of a big global experiment. To me, honestly, I think it's okay that each state is taking its own path. Because two years from now, or three, we can look at the literature and compare these are the interventions that happen in these places, and this is what we know about their outcomes. Since from the founding of the republic, the states have had a certain amount of independence, and that's how we set it up. And it's inconvenient in some ways, but it's good in some ways because it prevents tyranny. I think it's okay that states are coming up with these different approaches. And the people in those states elected those people to make decisions on their behalf. And that's okay. And governors are doing the best they can for the constituents within their frame of reference and given their ideology and voters put them in those places to make those decisions. And so going back to your question a few minutes ago, I think we'll know a lot more four, five, six weeks from now. Problem is there's no control for this experiment, is there? No, there is not. I will say that one of the challenges of the phase that we are now entering into is that there's no widely agreed upon goal anymore. The flatten the curve moniker, that was widely accepted as, okay, we need to flatten this curve so that we can stay within hospital and health systems capacity to address the problem. After we've achieved that goal, then what? Regardless of the degree of that flattening, in the U.S., that flattened curve is still having a high degree of death. Is that still the goal? We want to keep the curve flat. Is the goal we're trying to decrease the curve? I don't know that we as, as a nation have really said, all right, now that we flatten the curve, here's what our next step is and here's what we're trying to achieve. I couldn't agree more. And I think the unintended consequence of the success of flattening the curve is some people think the war is already over because the curve was flattened. Right? There's no health system overwhelmed, so everything's okay. And I know that that's something that we've had to say numerous times is actually, no, all we've done is made sure the health system is okay, not the population. But these interventions were sold as flatten the curve. Absolutely. So if you're going to do something besides that, you got to sell it. Right. So to Marcus's point, there is no collective. Right. I agree with that. We're in phase two now, and the goal is X. I think that's 100% right. Excellent point, Marcus. If we would have initially come out with a goal around, let's make sure grandma and grandpa stay safe, those interventions probably would have looked a lot differently than where we are right now. And in my mind, as somebody who's first and foremost focused on public health, that's kind of what I'm thinking of is how do we mitigate um, the degree of, of death and of morbidity throughout the states. But I realize that other people are wired completely differently. So it's a tough kind of nebulous situation that we're in right now. That's kind of what Sweden did, didn't it? And it kind of said, look, we gotta, yep. we got to keep the vulnerable. Uh, we, we don't want to shut down schools. We want to keep much of our economy going and and we're going to tolerate, you know, what we're doing here. I mean, the important caveats and differences between Sweden and the United States is, number one, they can do it because there's communal trust between the people and government. And then number two, they got a nationalized healthcare system where they can actually coordinate stuff like that and get data. But for us, we've sort of entered into this, gee, we wish we were Sweden. Let's reopen and just try to protect the sick. And in response, I don't know if you guys saw it, but the John Hopkins Security Center kind of tried to spell out what achieving herd immunity would mean. And basically they said, even at this rate that we're at now, even if it accelerates, we don't get to herd immunity until late 2021. And I would love to hear, you know, Will, do you think they're right there or 
how do you feel like herd immunity is going to go if we just keep reopening and don't have a plan for closing back down again should the virus start to take off? Here's the way I think about it. The herd immunity is part of the equation on R0. It's as people get infected with the virus, the virus is essentially vaccinating them. It's part of the equation. And so as more and more people get antibodies to the virus, they're far less likely to be reinfected and spread. But the other parts to the equation are the compliance with social distancing and the processes that businesses go through to protect their customers and their staff. It's all part of one giant equation. The number of people that have been infected with the virus and recovered is part of the equation. How well people comply with social distancing is part of the equation. How good contact tracing and testing in is part of the equation. How good businesses are at maintaining protection of their customers and staff is part of the equation. And so there's like all these parts to the equation and the number of people that get infected with the virus and recover will help overall. But you still need to rely on the contact tracing and the protecting of staff and people respecting social distancing and maintaining that until there's a vaccine. And so as more and more people get infected, it continues to help more and more with an R naught as big as this was to begin with, those other parts to the equation have to be really robust in order to get to the place where your R0 is one and you're only affecting fewer people with every new case than one. So it's only part of the equation, herd immunity. There's a lot of hope that we're closer to herd immunity than we think, that there's a lot of these silent infections. I don't know that that's true or not. I know the antibody tests, even the highest number I've seen of people having had the antibody test was in New York. And they thought maybe even it was like 15% of the population of New York City had had the virus already, which still leaves New York some 75, 85% left to go before they reach some level where herd immunity occurs. I feel like there's a lot of people who are out there thinking that we're somehow close to herd immunity, that it's going to be over sooner. And it's just nobody wants to kind of throw their mind around. What does this look like if it goes on for a year and a half? I don't want that to be the case, but I wonder if you guys have heard the same opinions or the same thoughts. I like the notion of herd immunity being a piece of the equation, one of the variables within the equation. Nick, I've heard similar data coming out of New York City. I think I saw that upwards of 20% of individuals have tested positive for the, the antibodies. So they're still a long way to achieving herd immunity. In Arizona, when you look at the state health department's latest data of the serology of the antibody tests that they've conducted, 2.9% have come back positive for antibodies. So we are even farther away than a place like New York City that has been hit harder than any other place in the entire world. It's not going to be the silver bullet, at least not in the foreseeable future, but it is an important piece of the equation, like Will had stated. Lightning round, question one. Of the unintended outcomes or consequences that you have seen, which would you identify as being one you think is important to talk about now and what should be done? Vaccinate your kids. Latest evidence that we're seeing is that parents are a little more apprehensive to take their children into the doctor to get their immunizations. Not just flu vaccines, we're talking non-flu vaccines like measles and diphtheria and other things that we have seen eradicated from our country for a very long time. We just need to be vigilant in the fact that doctor's offices are probably one of the more safe places for us to be. 
just because of the nature of them needing to stay clean. I know that a lot of physicians' offices are actually requiring people to wait out in the parking lot before they actually come in, maybe even doing scans of your temperature before you come in or even doing PCR tests before you come into the facility. But we need to make sure that we are vaccinating the next generation of Americans and that some of these diseases that we haven't seen for so long stay at bay. Well, I'm going to go big picture on it. I think it goes back to what we talked at the very beginning about how this is such an incredibly troubling event that's going to change the way people think. We talk about the depression. My mom won't throw away spoiled food. That had such a dramatic impact on the way they thought the rest of their lives. They're 85 now. The big picture consequences of the people, especially those in their formative years that are going through this, is going to have an impact on how they think about life and how they set priorities and what they care about and the way they think through problems. And it's going to have an impact on public policy forever. We're in the middle of it. Sometimes in your middle of something, you don't really understand the full gravity of it. It's not just a U.S. event. It's a global event. And it's going to have global public policy consequences. I don't know what those are going to be. Is it going to be a bigger rise in populism? Or will it be bigger rise in community awareness as we're a global community that needs to solve global problems in a more effective way. I just don't know how it plays out. I think it's going to have a giant impact on the rest of history. A lot of people are saying that, like you said, in terms of global community problems, it will help galvanize people's approach to climate change. I have seen people write that in numerous places. It might, or it could cause more populism. So I don't know, but it's going to have a profound impact, not just the virus, but the economic consequences that the virus poses and the level of debt that governments are now accumulating. Yeah, you can't have a lens wide enough to see the impact of this. And I completely agree with that. Somebody else smarter than I wrote that it may be similar to the difference of opinion that the United States had post-war than Europe. Post-war Europe was completely devastated. And there was a great urge for support and individual security. And, and out of that came sort of the European socialist state post-war United States, where we had manufacturing capacity and all of the economy was working, we ended up in consumerism and being, you know, really a nation of individuals. On a society level, we're, we're facing something like that, depending upon how big this impact is. But yeah, it's a reset of tolerance of risk for an entire generation. The other thing is just the acceleration of curves that were already happening, closure of retail, the death of shopping malls, and the shift to online. I don't see telehealth going away anytime soon, no matter what CMS does. Once people have gotten an option for it, once consumers have gotten a taste for it, I don't see that they're going to go back to, okay, you need to show up in a waiting room. You'll be seen when I'm ready. I just don't see that happening. I think telehealth is here to stay. It was already agreed earlier in this conversation that flatten the curve served its purpose and we need to move on to the next rallying cry. What would you propose that next rallying cry be? I'm going to start with Nick. For me, that one's easy. It's not either or, it's both. So it's not either the economy or lives, it's both. You just really have to sum it down to, we don't have to choose, but we need to do both. You can't keep closed forever and you can't just sacrifice people. You need to find a way to do both. All right, Marcus. Learning to thrive responsibly and safely. It's something around doing our best to live with this virus for the foreseeable future and to do our best to ensure that everybody who is physically near us is also healthy. The analogy is wearing a mask, like my mask protects you and your mask protects me. 
we just got to be willing to kind of hunker down and realize that that's the new norm for the foreseeable future. And we need to continue doing all the great social distancing as much as possible, continue really focusing on science and trying to find a vaccine, really focusing on the antibody tests, doing everything in our power to mitigate the damage. We have to keep on living. We have to thrive to the extent possible. We just have to learn how to do that with this virus kind of next to us for the foreseeable future. I think it's just doing the best we can and have realistic expectations until there's a vaccine. There's going to continue to be cases. It's never going to go to zero until there's a vaccine in our state. Um, We're going to always have bubbling of cases. Hopefully our contact tracers do a good job and that people comply with that voluntarily. Hopefully businesses are responsible and people continue to do social distancing responsibly for at least most of us. But at least we'll have achieved some goals. One is that at the beginning, remember, if you needed a bed, if you needed care from the virus, you were able to get that because Northern Italy scared us. We've now bought time so that businesses can open responsibly. This last six weeks of the stay-at-home order, the businesses had that time to buy their time to open responsibly. People have changed their behavior. Contact tracing is underway. There's more and more tests that are becoming available. It's a good combination of things that are getting better. The testing, the capacity, contact tracing, people's behavior, businesses thinking through how to do things right. All those things are going to have an effect to slow down what would have been but it's not going to bring it to zero. People just need to be aware of that. Um, But it's never been zero. Car crashes have never been zero. Heart disease has never been zero. Cancer's never been zero. Substance abuse deaths. There's all these different things that are threats in our lives. And I think... This is going to become and is becoming just one more of those threats. It's a new one. In some ways, I think it's becoming like many of the others. A good analogy is car crashes, right? You go around, you do things, you drive to other places, you go on vacations, you take the risk of driving the car, but you don't think it's going to happen to you. But you do things like buckle up, stay within the speed limit, don't drive while you're impaired. You do those things that minimize your risk, but everyone knows there's a chance If you drive to flag, you're not coming home. And I think this virus is becoming like that, where things that you can do, there's ways that you can um, mitigate. There's things that you can do to minimize your risk. But in the end, always going to be there until there's a vaccine. You know, as far as the the driving goes, it's just because people perceive this this sense of control. And and that's kind of what's happening is people are feeling like, okay, I've got a sense of control. Uh, Either this is a media story, it's overblown, or I can wear a mask, or I'm never going out again, whatever. But people have this this sense of control now. I am a physician who does not save lives. I prevent early death. And I will never get okay with saying, well, you know, death is all right. Yes, I know it's natural part, and it's not to be avoided, but preventing early death is what the heck I do. It's just one of those things that I'm not super comfortable with, just kind of going, well, you know, People die. It's just not one of those things that I'm ever going to roll with, I guess. Just so you know, I wasn't talking about doctors. I was talking about individuals in their daily lives. I think they're getting to the point, or they will get to the point, where they see the coronavirus as a threat that's out there, and it could happen to them, but they're willing to take chances because they want to do something, what they perceive as liberty or whatever that is. So that's why I meant was really thinking through how people are going to, in the end, come to grips with the risk that this virus poses, rather than 
mentioned talking about how doctors could see that. Well, if I could just tug on that motor vehicle accident metaphor a little bit more. In the early days of motor vehicles, there were a, a lot more deaths by motor vehicles. All of a sudden, we started creating rules of the road. There are lanes, there are traffic lights, there is a blinking red light in your car that says, hey, put on your seatbelt so you can stay safe. I think that we're still in the early days of this. And once we establish some rules of the road, I think it'll be a lot safer and a lot easier for people to understand how to, maybe maybe that metaphor is a little bit more appropriate, but right now it'd be like going out on the road and having no lanes, having no speed limits, having no traffic lights and saying, go for it, good luck. We've got guidance out there about which way you should go. If you don't go in that direction, if somebody else is coming on the other direction, then buyer beware. Let me just say the stay-at-home order is something like a 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. So it's an intervention, a policy intervention, that had a dramatic effect, but it slowed down the cars, okay, and we knew that. It slowed down the economy, but it saved lives because everyone was driving 55. And so now we're going to go to 65 or 75. There's going to be more risk out there. As a society, through our elected officials, we elected people as a republic. So they're going to decide how much risk we should be able to tolerate. What part of the equations are more important to them have a lot to do with their ideology that they came to the job with. Marcus brought up the idea of we've got to learn how to live safely with COVID-19. What advice would you give to our community about what the right first next step is to do in order to move towards learning to live safely with COVID-19? Nick? I have been impressed and disturbed by the power of our social networks and our internet to spread disinformation. And we went from unanimity to now a polarized approach to this. And I don't know how to get good tested information out while we're learning and it's seven months into a pandemic. How do we keep people safe is very simple. You wear a mask, you wash your hands, you keep some distance, you stay home unless you have to uh, go out. And if you go out, well, then have some hand sanitizer or soap and water or do the things that you know. But let's get people masks, simple stuff. Let's not reinvent the wheel. The fact that there is a fight over that is one of the things that I, I am disturbed of the most. But if I were to summarize, you would say, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Hand hygiene, masks, and then we'll just watch from there. Will, same question to you. What's the right first next step that you recommend to people so they can learn to live safely with COVID-19? I guess it's the golden rule. Everyone knows what the right thing to do is. What Nick just said, for crying out loud, don't go out if you don't feel well. Pay attention to yourself. If you have any symptoms at all, stay home. That minimizes your risk of spreading it to others and helps our community. All the things Nick just said. Because we're ramping up the contact tracing and the testing, If you're contacted by your county health department, please take it seriously and follow through with their recommendations on isolation and quarantine. Marcus, to you, most important next step. Will already said that the golden rule is the next step, so that's kind of hard to follow up. I just, I keep going back to, if folks aren't currently taking this seriously, at the very least, the thing that people should pay attention to are the deaths. This is a serious issue Take it seriously, even if it's not directly affecting you or if it's not directly yet affecting your family. 
do everything in your power you can to keep yourself safe and to keep those who are nearby you safe, taking your local public health department calls seriously, and just do the best you can. Do the best you can indeed. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Will. And thank you, Marcus, for that final reminder that doing the best each of us can is a smart place to focus our hearts, our minds, and our actions. It's an honor to sit with all three of you for these roundtable dialogues. Our discussions never fail to produce a knowledge drop, inspire a bad joke or two, and provoke important moments of consideration that can help us all to move forward with just a little bit more understanding and even a little more grace. We'll see you at the next roundtable in a couple of weeks. As the data and a series of state-by-state public health experiences continue to grow, there's no question that there will be more to chew on then. Of course, you'll get a fuller picture of what's happening in Arizona right now when you listen to all of our episodes. That's why we're keeping you in touch with other aspects of what's going on in between roundtables. For example, last week we released First Responders and COVID-19, an episode dedicated to our fire, police, and EMS personnel, particularly their mental health. And two weeks before that, we released our first food-focused episode of the COVID era featuring the Maricopa County Food System Coalition. If you missed any of this stuff, no problem. You can visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org slash podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify. Or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. And like we mentioned above, we got great news on that front. The Vitalist Spark is now available on Spotify, and you can subscribe to be notified of new episodes there too. In the world of podcasts, you can give us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overdrive, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.